So perhaps you have seen the bumper sticker proclaiming an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. It is a, a quote that has often been attributed to Gandhi or to, to Martin Luther King, though I was unable to verify that in my research this last week. Now, there is something deeply true about the statement, as I hope to show, but I think, as it is, is commonly understood, the pronouncement, an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind, is a misinterpretation of the, of the biblical command. The original intent behind the command from the book of Genesis of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth is actually an attempt to restrict violence. Far from being a call to, to unrestrained uh, tit-for-tat that, that builds upon itself, it is meant to keep reprisals proportionate to the offense and to stop the escalation of violence. It is actually an attempt to keep the world from going blind as opposed to making the whole world go blind. And moreover, in Jesus' time, the command was not interpreted literally. Rather, it spoke to the need for just compensation for damage done. Usually, that compensation was financial. And in this way, an eye for an eye is really just about justice, proportionate justice for wrongs committed and suffered. And as such, I would argue it's actually pretty reasonable. An eye for an eye is really just plain common sense. And along those lines, I would argue that the saying to love your neighbor and to hate your enemy is also reasonable. It's also common sense. Now, I will admit there is no biblical command to hate your enemies like there is with loving your neighbor. We heard that this morning from Leviticus. But it's important to realize that, that the hatred here is not really about bearing malice or enmity. The hate here is not necessarily the, the hatred of racism or, or xenophobia. The hatred is more about not considering and not choosing. It is about preferring to take care of one's own before one takes care of the other and the outsider. It is as reasonable as saying, if it is a, if it's a choice between us and them, then I choose us. And in that way, it's also just common sense. And in this light, what Jesus commands of his disciples is not common sense. It is not reasonable. Turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give to all who ask, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. None of that is reasonable. It is foolishness, really. And so I'm tempted to just go ahead and go sit down 
uh, and let you out of church a little bit early on this holiday weekend. Um, actually, that's not the case. This sermon's actually longer than my normal sermons. Um, slight of hand there. And that's because as much as Jesus is giving his disciples a path of foolishness, there's also something fundamental here about the gospel. If we are going to be people who look to accept the challenge of, of striving to follow Christ, then we need this particular word. We need this particular command because we really can't know Christ until we see him as the embodiment of this commandment to love our enemies. The whole of the, of the fifth chapter of Matthew's gospel that we've been hearing over these last few weeks, beginning with the Beatitudes, has all been building to this command to love one's enemies. Indeed, Jesus is the one who loves his enemies. He is the one who makes peace. And this is so, while his whole life and ministry is filled with conflict. And, he's, but, and yet, he is always resisting the path of violence. Taken point, when, when Jesus challenges and rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes, he's always calling on those, those challengers to, to change their ways and to view the world from God's perspective, which is to say that he is always calling them to repentance. This call to change, it actually assumes the capacity for change. Jesus grants his opponents the dignity of this potential. He does not ever assume that anyone is irredeemably evil. He's even willing to stake his life on it and to suffer and die for it, as indeed he does. It's worth, it's worth recognizing that after the resurrection, when Jesus' disciples go, come before the same religious authorities who had a hand in Jesus' execution, those disciples carry on Jesus' conviction as they also call the religious authorities to change their hearts and their minds and their lives, even after the part they played in the death of the Messiah. And when Paul, the Apostle Paul, reflects on the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul sees Jesus as the one who brings about peace. In the second chapter of the letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes Jesus as the one who heals the division between Jews and Gentiles. From a biblical perspective, the great chasm that runs through humanity has now been bridged, and all of humanity is one. Our oneness should bring about peace even as we already exist in peace. That would be Paul's claim. And moreover, in the fifth chapter of the letter to the Romans, Paul describes humanity itself 
as God's enemies. Paul says that God has made peace with us through Christ's death. So, Romans 5.10, Paul says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Much more surely, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life. Paul provocatively calls humanity God's enemies. But to Paul's mind, the way of Jesus is not just a path of, to healing the enmity that exists within the human family, but even more so, the path of Jesus heals the enmity between humanity and God. Seen in this light, we are to love our enemies because God loves God's enemies. This path of love and peace is God's way. This foolish path of Jesus, this path of loving one's enemies, is actually woven into the fabric of the universe. This way of peace, it is our destiny, and it is already our hidden reality, obscured but nonetheless real. This command of of loving enemies, therefore, is not incidental. It's not optional. It is actually fundamental to the Christian way. It is essential to our faith. We cannot understand Christianity if we do not understand and strive to live into this command of loving our enemies as we love ourselves. When Jesus tells us to love our enemies, Jesus is bidding us to wake up and to see in our enemy our sister and our brother, to see our enemy as a child of God, to see them as beloved by God. When Jesus calls us to be perfect, he's not not calling us to live without error as if that was possible. Rather, when Jesus is, what Jesus is calling us to be is to be like God. He's calling us to love as God loves. That is, without distinction between friend and foe. And yet Jesus is not being Pollyanna. Jesus is a realist. He does not assume that we can exist without conflict. In fact, He invites us into it. All of the examples that Jesus uses to talk about his way of peace actually assume conflict. Jesus' command to, to turn the other cheek recognizes a world of struggle and yet also gives us a nonviolent way of existing in that struggle that acknowledges the inherent dignity of our enemy. What Jesus rejects is violent reprisal. When Jesus says, do not resist an evildoer, the resistance here is violent resistance. He is rejecting a path of violence that in a country that is occupied by the Romans, who were considered the enemies by Jews. The path instead 
is to break the cycle of violence through a nonviolent resistance that lays bare the nature of the conflict. Turning the other cheek, giving the cloak, going the extra mile are all ways of shining light on injustice. And so, too, is, is loaning to those and giving to those who ask, for it reveals a world of haves and have-nots, a world that needs to change if it is going to reflect, reflect God's ways. But this path that Jesus offers assumes our activity. Jesus does not call us to be passive. All of these actions are forms of resistance. They are all an active way of being in the world. So if you are are struck, you don't just slink away. If you are, are sued, you don't just hand over your coat and give thanks that you didn't lose your cloak as well. If you're conscripted to carry the gear for a Roman soldier, that's, that's going the mile, then you don't just go your mile, but take another one as a judgment against the soldier and to spare another person from having to carry that burden. Jesus calls us to resist violence and injustice, but to do so nonviolently. And ultimately, this path of nonviolence is a, is a way of life that Jesus calls us to make our own, as Jesus has made us his own. And therefore, as followers of Jesus, we have to be deeply skeptical about all calls to resort to violence, whether those calls come from our government or from our own hearts. As followers of Jesus, we are, it is demanded that we look for alternative ways of, of engaging conflict and enmity so that we might transform enmity with the power of peace. We are to break the cycle of violence, not by cutting ourselves off from the world and its conflicts, but by offering an alternative way, a nonviolent way.